0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian-American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian-American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I'm the director of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, I have the privilege to host a conversation with Dr. Jane Hong, who is the Associate Professor of History at Occidental College, and also the author of a forthcoming book tentatively titled Model Christians, Model Minorities, Asian Americans, Race and Politics in the Transformation of U.S. Evangelicalism, Welcome, Jane. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. It's good to see you, and it's great to be here.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, Jane, I've been thinking of your first book because I'm, I think I'm three weeks into the semester. And in the second week, we used excerpts from your first book. I'm going to get the title right here. It's called Opening the Gates to Asia, a Trans-Pacific History of How America Repealed Asian Exclusion. And uh, we had a great conversation about the repeal of exclusion and sort of the trans-Pacific context for that repeal. So I just want to give a shout out to your first book. But perhaps for our audience, share a little bit with us your intellectual journey, your even personal journey going from your first book to your second book, which has a more explicit religious framing. Uh, we I, I I'm always curious when I interview academics and authors, sort of the subtext and background from which they're writing.
0: Yeah, no, I love those biographical kind of backgrounds as well. I mean, so the first book really, I should say it originated in my college, my undergraduate <laughs> senior thesis um, on Korean Americans and their fight for immigration and naturalization rights. And so. You know, I think like a lot of folks, I learned about Chinese exclusion in the classroom or maybe some people don't learn about it. Who knows? But um, at Yale, I took an Asian American history class um, and was really steeped in that history, the legal history of of exclusion. Um, Koreans don't really fit easily into that story, which tends to be dominated by kind of Chinese Americans and then later by Japanese American incarceration during World War II. Those are kind of the two biggest hits. Um, But, you know, studying Koreans, I I did that in part because, you know, I am Korean American. My parents are immigrants from South Korea. They came in the 1970s um, under the 65 Immigration Act, and my mom was a nurse, and that's how they were able to enter. Um, And that story really kind of, that undergraduate research really kind of centered the problem of colonialism and empire, right? Because Korea was a colony of Japan, right? So from the very beginning, I had a kind of colonial or imperial framework in mind. By the time I got to grad school, I thought, okay, let me just kind of pick up and continue with this research, but broaden it. Um, because, you know, we know that exclusion, Chinese exclusion happens, we know it gets expanded to Asians, but then very few people have talked, had talked a lot about kind of how it ended. I mean, we knew it, that it ended because people like my parents were able to enter the country. Um, but it was kind of hazy or it was very piecemeal. And so, you know, that book was, again, it centered the, the kind of the question of, of US empire. And so thinking about, thinking about kind of the end of Asian exclusion in the US beyond the kind of, you know, ethnic kind of civil rights framework, but thinking of it more broadly um, in a global context. And that had a lot to do with my training as a diplomatic historian, um, US and the world. But you're right, religion wasn't really central to the first book. It became, it, 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 religion was important in the sense that missionaries, US missionaries to Asia were a really big, very prominent, uh, had a very prominent part to play um, in the repeal movements. And then the India chapter, it was really interesting. Um, Muslim Hindu kind of tensions were actually central to the Indian campaign for immigration naturalization rights. So religion popped up in like unexpected ways, right? That I hadn't anticipated. Um, But, you know, I basically wrote the first book, I researched it, and while I was in Asia, I did research in the Philippines, Korea, and India. Um, And while I was doing that, I thought, you know, I I already know what my second book is going to be. I'm gonna write about um, Asian diasporas and their role in independence, anti-colonial movements in Asia. And I was gonna focus on three case studies, um, Koreans, Indians, and Filipinos, because their histories are just quite different. from Chinese and Japanese um, history. And that's not to say the empire is not central. Clearly the Japanese empire was a huge presence, right? So empire is really at the heart of many of these histories, or if not all. Um, But, you know, I think India, the Philippines and and Korea, I mean, they were formally colonized by other powers and they all became, quote, independent nation states after World War II, although that, that means many different things. And so I was really interested in Indians, Koreans, and Filipinos in the US, who were really actually quite important um, in some ways to the independence movements based in Asia. And so while I was doing my first book, I actually collected research for my second book. And I actually started writing the second book. So I have a chapter about Young Hill Kang, who was this, he was actually in some ways the first Korean American writer. Um, He teaches at NYU during the 1930s, he went to Guggenheim. He wrote you know, several books, um, East Me- East Goes West is probably the best known. But he was actually, he served in the US military government in South Korea after World War II. And I was really interested in kind of these figures that people just didn't know much about. So I literally started writing that book. But then um, as I've talked with you about before, like I was part of um, a project here in Southern California called Venn Diagram, which was an offshoot of this women faculty of color group that I was a part of um, under InterVarsity's graduate and faculty ministries. And, you know, oftentimes we would talk about, you know, it, it's, it seemed as if a lot of Christians, especially Asian American Christians, who are actually a huge presence here in Southern California, it just seemed like people didn't really know where they fit into conversations, right? Um, conversations about race, Black Lives Matter, um, abort, like abortion, any number of different kind of issues. And especially when it comes to voting and kind of civic engagement, like what did it mean to be a Christian in these spaces? But then more specifically, what did it mean to be an Asian American Christian? Because that is a different, that's a very distinct, um, I think, positionality. And so, so we started hosting these forums in January, 2017. The first one was right around the inauguration of Donald Trump. And I think there was a lot of, and, and you know, I think 200, I mean, it was actually a a lot of people attended our first uh, forum and Russell Jung spoke, Amos Young, um, Jessica Chen Feng, and then I spoke. And I just gave a short kind of, essentially these forums, we we asked two scholars, Asian American Christian scholars, to kind of talk about how their research, you know, engages what's happening around and, and kind of what it means to be a Christian studying these topics. And so I just gave a very brief and very, to me, rudimentary overview of the rise of the religious right in the United States and like why it is that people in like 2017 were talking about evangelicals as a political force as opposed to, you know, a a kind of a religious um, constituency. And why is it that evangelicals were considered white evangelicals in particular to be, why were they considered an important constituency within the Republican Party? Because historians... I've been writing about these questions for a while and there's a whole body of literature about you know evangelicalism and the rise of kind of the new right the moral majority jerry falwell abortion civil rights randall Ballmer. i mean so much has been written by historians but then people were just people just you know when i gave this really short talk i mean i realized that most people in that room like had no idea what i was talking about and like had never heard this history and yet I thought that was really sad because we're we're basically living in the product of that history. And you know, the, the context, the political context we live in, the entanglement of religion and politics, this particular version of it was really forged in this 1970s and after. And it's really a new, it's a relatively new development. And yet, most people living, you know, today, understandably, if you don't know this history, you just assume this is how it's always been, but it hasn't. <laughs> it, it, it's not always been this way. And so historians know that, I teach this literally every year in my survey and students are always surprised by it too. Um, Yeah, and so after seeing that, I thought, you know, (laughs) know, maybe I should write something more along these lines. It's like, because Asian American Christians don't know their own history. They don't know where they fit in US history is, but it's really important for them. You know, it's really important for us to know our history. And so that's what kind of led me to this second book. So I kind of, I've now put the the book I thought I was going to write about diaspora and decolonization. <laughs> I have put that to the side for now. So it's sitting there waiting for me. And I have a lot of my archival work done. Um, and now I'm focusing on this book instead. And the religious piece. I mean, I was raised as a Christian. I grew up in a Korean immigrant church. Um, I've been a member of any number of historically white. Evangelical, primarily, organizations. I've gone to Foursquare churches, Evangelical Covenant. I've been a member of a PCA church once. I mean, so Baptists. (laughs) So it's like, I don't think most Asian-American Christians, I think a lot of folks have very similar kind of, you know, experiences where you're just kind of a member of all these different organizations. You don't really know where these organizations are coming from, how they fit into this larger history. And so as much as I'm writing this for other people, I'm also writing this for myself and my family.
1: That's a really helpful kind of uh, prehistory to this uh, second, well, I'll call it the second book project because it will be the second one you'll be publishing even yes. though it's third in the order of your conceptualization. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this Venn diagram, 2017, what I'm hearing in the background here is you're responding to a real need, the need to tell the story of the rise of Asian American Christianity in the 70s and 80s. And what's going on with this term evangelical? Is it a religious term, a political term? And the answer is yes, right? That's, that's kind of the um, the complexity of the term evangelical and how how race plays in the development of that movement in the 70s to 80s. That's, that's kind of what I'm hearing from you. You also mentioned something I wanna just draw attention to it, and see how it works out in the rest of our podcast conversation. And that's when you said Asian American Christians um, have a distinct positionality. I I think that's exactly right. And so I want to circle back to that at some point or find a way to touch upon that as you talk more. So you've got this book, you're writing, you and I have been talking about it. You've been speaking about it in various places on various chapters. Uh, I want to know what stage of, of, of completion it's in and, and all that stuff, but we don't have to get into that. Tell me more about the big claim. Like, what's the big argument of this book? And what are the smaller claims, you know, the, the kind of subsidiary arguments underneath it? Begin there.
0: I think the big claim is that. Asian and Asian Americans matter to the history of modern evangelicalism. So, post kind of, you know, conservative era, post 65, post civil rights era evangelicalism. Because, again, as I mentioned, that has been so I kind of narrated the story from the perspective of kind of the community really inspired, right? My, it's, it's really just my being in community with other Asian American Christians here in Southern California and with other scholars, that really, those experiences, those conversations really impressed upon me the importance of this history. That's part of the story. The other part is the scholarly, the academic conversation, which, you know, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but generally speaking, there is, I've seen people call it a cottage industry because it really is. There's a whole cottage industry within U.S. history that has emerged um, of, of, U.S. historians, white women, white men, generally writing about, you know, Jerry Falwell, um, initially the men, right? Um, There's debates about like, what really drove the rise of the religious right? Was it a civil rights backlash like Randall Balmer argues? (laughs) Was it abortion like Daniel K. Williams and other historians? So there's debates within kind of these conversations that are ongoing. And then more recently, you know, you have books like Jesus and John Wayne that look at the role of kind of patriarchy, Um, misogyny, right? So, I mean, there's a lot within this field, this scholarly conversation. More recently, I mean, there are folks like Jamar Tisby, right, who have spoken to kind of like like Black evangelicals. There are now books devoted to the kind of tensions inherent in, are there, can there be Black evangelicals? Like, what does it mean to be a Black evangelical? Does that term even make sense? Like what, and that really gets down to the question of, the term evangelical, the way it's used is often inherently racialized. We don't always put the the identifier white or descriptor white in front of it, but the assumption is usually when you're talking about evangelicals in the political arena, you're talking about white evangelicals, right? Because they're the ones who are part of the Republican party. They're the ones who are driving a lot of these kind of partisan trends. But the thing is, we know that there are evangelicals who are not white. who are like, like a shadowy presence in some ways. Um, I think there is always a narrative about kind of white black relations, right? Civil rights, right? The rise of the religious right as in part of backlash to black rights, civil rights, right? Black civil rights claims, et cetera. But my claim is, you know, the book is basically saying like you can't just stop there, like, it's not, I mean, it's like all other parts of kind of US <laughs> history. It's like, or many parts. Um, Black, white racial binaries really do limit how you understand history, it's also how you understand race. Because race is inherently, I mean, the way that many historians of race talk about it, race is it, it's it's a relational construct. It's, you know, it's not just black, white, it's also like, where do other people of color fit into the conversation? Like how, how should we understand race as relational, right? That African Americans, Asian Americans, Latinx Americans, Indigenous Americans were all racialized in relationship with one another. This is not just about like. This is a binary and people we're gonna stick people into this binary, like fit them in somewhere. So there's that larger kind of conceptual point, but I just wanted to argue, and I, based on my research here, I mean, the last few years has been really interesting, I should say, you know, I think many of us have seen a number of really, really well-established, probably the most kind of storied evangelical organizations. A number of them have appointed Asian American leaders at the helm like the National Association of Evangelicals, InterVarsity, you have seminaries that are now run by Asian-Americans, the Gospel Coalition, Evangelicals for Social Action, now Christians for Social Action, there's so many, right? And so that that has also helped me in terms of making a case for why Asian-Americans matter, because one of the questions is, how do you get here, where you have like all these Asian-American folks at the top? Organizations may, or like they're somewhat diverse, they may or may not be, right, diverse, but The Asian Americans at the top, and so the question is, how do you get here? So that's one way of framing things. But I mean, just generally speaking, I just my argument is Asians and Asian Americans matter to these to this these histories of how race, religion, and politics are entangled, because not only do you have the rise of the religious right, but you have the demographic transformation of the United States and of the electorate by the post 1965 immigration wave, and so that's how I've made this book legible in lots of ways to. You know, just everyday historians, it's like thinking about this history as at the intersection of the rise of the religious right and the politicization of evangelicalism, you know, and the kind of again, the transformation of the racial composition of America because of post 65 immigration, which is largely Asian and Latinx. And so you you know, folks don't often talk about these things, these developments together. Janelle Wong is one of the few people who has. She looks at it more in terms of kind of contemporary politics and how it plays out um, in terms of electoral politics. But I'm looking at it in terms of like, what happens? (laughs) Like how do these two developments intersect and what does that actually mean for Asian American Christians on the ground?
1: That's so fascinating. I have a lot of questions. Let me, Let me ask this. So we're talking about this intersection between kind of a standard narrative about the intermingling of evangelical Christianity and the rise of the religious right from the 70s through the 80s. And there's different ways to frame that in reaction to the civil rights movement or in relation to abortion, et cetera, et cetera. And your contribution is to bring in the post 65 immigration boom and the changing demographic of the US and how that's been uh, invisible in the American religious histories of evangelicalism. Have you come across in your research as you're writing your chapters, any kind of uh, jaw droppers, like things that you didn't even know before that your research is unveiling or that maybe our audience would find interesting and new?
0: I mean, there are several things that kind of come to mind, which I just find interesting for many different reasons. The first, um, like in the first chapter of the book, I write about an Asian-American Christian commune, which I think I've mentioned in other contexts, but the fact that there was an Asian-American Christian commune <laughs> in the late 1960s, early 1970s, Los Angeles. Um, and at this Asian-American Christian commune, I mean, they drew from, I don't, I don't think many folks probably know this history, there was something called the jesus movement the jesus freak movement in the late 60s early 1970s which was oftentimes framed as it's a it's a white evangelical youth counterculture where you had hippies jesus freaks um, like vineyard comes out of a lot of this calvary chapel comes out of this movement so there are actually institutions that come out of this movement but it was a counterculture among young white evangelicals who rejected like the established church, they, you know, they had issues with um, kind of the hypocrisy of older Christian generations. They were interested in social justice to some extent, but they set up like communes and there were a number of communes nationally. Um, and these actually, like they made the cover of like Newsweek, right? There was actually a whole issue of Newsweek in the early seventies devoted to the Jesus movement. So it, Evangelical, the 60s and 70s are really interesting and for so many different reasons. Um, I mean, obviously, people know about the civil rights movement, but for Asian Americans, the Asian American movement in the late 60s, that's what even births the term Asian American. Um, And the fact that, I mean, this commune really represents, I would argue, right, it's it's, again, this, this intersection between white evangelical kind of countercultures, commune culture and the Asian American movement. So the idea that these young Asian American evangelicals, not only are they evangelical, but they're also thinking of themselves really, not just as Chinese American, Japanese American, but as Asian American. So what does it actually look like in practice? So that's one thing I'm kind of um, piecing out or one thing I'm kind of looking at that I found really interesting. I think the other is just, you know, this time period 60s and 70s, uh, I mean, this is one of the only moments in U.S. history when U.S.-born Asian Americans outnumber foreign-born. That never happens. It hasn't happened before. World War II, it doesn't happen again after 1980. So literally, there are just a few decades after World War II where U.S.-born kind of younger Asian Americans, they're the majority, and so they have greater influence um, than ever before. That ends, that changes in large part because of the huge influx of Asian immigrants under the 65 Immigration Act But so the late kind of this period, the the mid-century decades, they represent a really particular moment in Asian American history when, I don't know, a lot of things are possible. And the other thing is, you know, during this time, and this is important too, I mean, Japanese Americans are the largest Asian American group. And I think, you know, folks might've heard of Yuri Kochiyama, right? Who's very famously involved um, with black power and Asian American civil rights in New York City. You know, Yuri Kochyama is part of a really large generation of Japanese American activists, um, some of whom are Christian, right? And they're really in many ways the driving force behind a lot of these developments I'm talking about. Chinese Americans are also an important presence, but Chinese, the Chinese population in the US really, it basically triples between 1960 and 1980. So by 1980, Chinese Americans are the largest ethnic group, um, Asian ethnic group in the United States. But before then, right, Japanese Americans are really the drivers. And so another thing that I found really interesting in these early chapters of the book is, and Helen Jin Kim and others have written about this um, as well, and Blankenship, right? Thinking about like the role that wartime incarceration, like what does, how does that shape Japanese American politics, Japanese American views, but specifically Japanese American Christianity, because it does reshape Japanese American Christianity. And so I think, you know, being able to tie these earlier histories that people might have heard of with these later histories, I think has been really interesting. I think even just thinking about Asian American Christians during this period, they're not a huge presence or they're not like a huge population, but in places like Southern California, Northern California, they're actually are kind of, they're quite substantial and sizable. And there are these really well-established churches that I'm learning a lot about. And these are both mainline and evangelical. So. Um, you know, yesterday I interviewed Katie Choi Wong, who was one of the first. Um, she was a she's a Chinese American woman. Um, I think she worked for the American Baptist denomination. One of the first, I think she's one of their first kind of elected bishops um, in the '80s. I mean, just hearing her stories, thinking about, I guess, thinking about how Chinese and Japanese American Christianity, in particular, um, I guess, were shaped by these early histories. The last thing I'll say, and and I didn't mean for my answer to focus so heavily on the earlier period, but that's partly because um, I've been thinking a lot about the earlier period, 60s and 70s. I've also just been living in California as well. I've just been so surprised by how established some of these ethnic churches already were by the 60s and 70s. I mean, Evergreen Baptist Church, many people know, Um, so Evergreen Baptist Church, you know, has a very storied history, very important role after incarceration, right? Helping Japanese Americans as they were resettling in places like California. But like GEMS, Japanese Evangelical Mission Society based in Little Tokyo, GEMS, you know, it, it creates Asian American Christian Fellowship which is a parachurch group that's active on many West Coast college campuses. But I mean, these histories, Gardena Valley Baptist Church, Chinese, you know, First Chinese Baptist Church of San Francisco. I mean, these are churches that have been around for a long time and I I think sometimes if you're from the East Coast like I am or if you're not connected to these histories personally, it can be easy to forget that there really is a very long history um, of Asian American Christians in this country.
1: I wanna talk more about these um, long-standing Asian American congregations. So, And this is, as I was listening to the different um, stories and cases you've, you're interested in, one question that came up, which is, when you interview folks, or when you dig into archives, when you examine this early period, do the Asian American Christians that you're studying, do they self-identify as, oh, I'm evangelical, or I'm mainline? Like, so let's say there's Evergreen, it's a Baptist church, but Do they promote and and publicly identify as Baptist? Is that really important to them? Or are they just evergreen and they're kind of, we're a local church, we kind of, uh, we do this, we do that. Um, So, because I'm trying to figure out how even denominations themselves have, have a racial sort of background and context. And so this intersection of denominationalism with racial minorities, that's a complication Um, That upsets the narratives, Uh, so I guess to begin with, do the folks that you're talking to self-identify in the the historical record or in in current interviews as evangelical or not, and how do these congregations position themselves to pre-existing white denominational systems?
0: No, it's a great question. That's something I tackle. These are exactly questions I tackle in the first chapter of the book, so I've been thinking a lot about these questions um, in the past. So before the 1960s and 70s, actually, before the 60s, the term mainline wasn't commonly used. And I think just even among American Christians, and that's because the mainline was just the default. <laughs> so when you think about like where most people were, <laughs> where you know, which churches had the greatest membership. So that's a general kind of um, comment, just to think about that growing polarization between mainline and evangelical that really does emerge in the late 60s and after where, and this is really, this is also interesting. And this is just a general comment about evangelical, the term, you know, folks like David Swartz, there are a number of historians who've written about kind of the era of evangelical possibility (laughs) because before the late 70s, this argument goes, I think it's quite compelling. It wasn't a given that, white evangelicals would be conservative, that they would contribute to the conservative kind of right-wing side of the political spectrum. Because, you know, you did have this group, people like Ron Sider, Jim, Jim Wallace a post-American, which later becomes Sojourners, this kind of progressive white evangelical group. Like there are Newsweek articles about them in the early 70s predicting or anticipating that they would become a major force in American politics. or they had the possibility of becoming a major force in American politics. I mean, in retrospect, we think, oh, so like, (laughs) so wrongheaded. And there are all kinds of reasons why, you know, evangelical Christians never become a constituency of the democratic party in the same way that, you know, for the Republican party. So, I mean, there are all kinds of arguments about what happens next, but during the late sixties and early seventies, like evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular were really involved. They were getting really involved politically, socially, in different ways, but on all kind of parts of the, of the spectrum. So the, I think that's a really important piece to just think about. Like the evangelical mainline divide wasn't really, it began hardening in the 60s, 70s, right? Around, there are all kinds of arguments. John Compton, End of Empathy, has a whole other argument about why um, white folks stopped going to mainline churches. But you're right that the the question, these denominational divisions are, they look a little different for Asian Americans because, um, and the argument I do make, and I've double checked this with a number of people, um, is that really before the 60s, ethnicity really supersedes denomination um, in terms of how Chinese American Christians operate, Japanese American Christians operate. Um, And for Japanese Americans, it's a product in some ways of the incarceration because churches were basically lumped together, (laughs) ecumenicalism, right? Um, And I think that influence continues even after World War II for Chinese Americans, right? Christians, there aren't that many of them, so I think part of it has to do with, right? So these sharp divisions don't become, they don't really emerge more until later. There are divisions, people make them internally, but it's not kind of on a broad scale. And before the 60s, I mean, Chinese and Japanese Americans, Filipino Americans, um, other Asians you know, they belong to kind of ethnic churches, and there is an effort by mainline churches to integrate them, which I think the folks know mainline history, there's an effort to kind of fold Japanese churches, Chinese churches into kind of, kind of white leadership. Um, So rather than having like separate ethnic caucuses, they try to fold them in. I'm talking here about, you know, basically the the mainline denominations, the UMC, the Presbyterian Church, uh, American Baptist and that really just goes badly, um, because it, it really harms the ethnic church. Um, and so the caucus movements in the 60s and 70s essentially are an effort by mainline Asian American leaders to gain a greater voice within historically white mainline denominations. And so that story I tell is part of right, one of the impacts of the Asian American movement on the mainline church. And then I look at stories about how the Asian American movement and ideas about Asian-American-ness, pan-racial kind of pan-Asian consciousness, how do evangelicals apply this this differently? And they do, they apply those ideas very differently. Um, Really not really on an institutional level, it's more kind of, they apply these ideas to evangelism Right, because I think I guess the last thing I'll say, and this just perhaps will give us a little more context. The argument that historians make about mainline versus evangelicals during the 60s and 70s is that mainline churches generally, they were on board with federal civil rights legislation. They opposed the Vietnam War. They believed in structural understandings of racism like, oh, racism, it's a structural problem. It's not just like people are lazy. It's not just a kind of individualistic problem. And whereas kind of many kind of mainstream white evangelicals, even people like Billy Graham, their argument was racism is bad. Yes, social ills are bad, but it's not policy that will solve these problems. It's personal salvation, right? So individuals who are brought to salvation, who are discipled, right, kind of transformed, that will solve racism. You don't need federal policy. And so a lot of it has to do with the role of the state, structural versus non-structural. This is stuff that, you know, divided by faith. You have books that talk about the the kind of non-structural way that evangelicals talk about race versus, you know, mainline folks talk about race. Asian Americans are caught in this conversation. And that's part of what I flesh out in the first chapter. It's like, how do Asian Americans make sense of themselves? (laughs) Uh, How do they locate themselves in this very Black and white conversation? Because on the one hand, they've experienced racism and they've experienced structural racism. If you're a Japanese American person in the 1960s, you're not gonna say, oh, there is no structural state-sponsored racism. Why? Because your family had been incarcerated during World War II. You you yourself might have been incarcerated during World War II. So Roy Sano, folks like them, they had been incarcerated. So like for them to deny state-sponsored structural racism is like ridiculous. And for Chinese Americans as well, right? And Filipino Americans for different reasons, colonialism. So I mean, it's like on the one hand they know that racism is structural, systemic. On the other hand, the model minority narrative is telling them (laughs) that they've made it. So there are these other kind of pressures. And the the last thing I'll say: the model minority gets really popularized in the late 1960s. That's when the articles come out in New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, 1966, 67. So these. So, that's what makes this moment so important, but also so formative. It's like it's where in a lot of these different pressures and ideas, things that we still think about today, I think, I would argue, it's when a lot of them kind of just converge, right, in the late 60s and 70s in this moment. And that's why understanding that history of the 60s and 70s, I think, is incredibly important um, to understanding where we are now, because it's really that history that has given birth to the context we live in. Because I think Asian Americans still struggle with a lot of the same questions. It's like, where do Asian Americans fit in this black and white racial narrative? Like, where do Asian Americans fit in terms of, you know how we think about ah, state social services, the role of the state, the role of the government in any number of different things. Like where do Asian Americans fit there? I think a lot of those questions are similar today.
1: The comment about the model minority um, and its popularization and, and kind of, I'm tr- I just taught it this past week um, yesterday, actually, so it's fresh on my mind. And your comment about Billy Graham, evangelical piety, that's largely personalist, individualistic. It's not gonna highlight the structural and systemic sort of political systems at work. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's a powerful cocktail to drink from both the model minority story and the evangelical piety piece Because then um, it sort of um, creates a picture where personal responsibility and hard individual effort is rewarded. Um, Does your research bear that out, that there's some kind of synergy between the model minority narrative and sort of evangelical piety that they're somehow mutually reinforcing? Or is, is that not something you're finding?
0: No, this is something I've been thinking through a lot, like how to articulate that relationship, because I do think they're connected in the sense that the non-structural race, the the non-structural approach of the model minority is very complementary to kind of white mainstream conservative evangelical tropes at the time, right? They're non-structural. They emphasize exactly what you said. They emphasize the non-structural, the individualistic, kind of the personal responsibility, kind of cultural traits. So they really do go hand in hand. I mean, in some ways, I've, I've you know, I've been reading a lot of these primary sources um, in writing these chapters. I mean, in some ways, you could argue that, you know, older Asian American church leaders in the 60s and 70s, the ones who are more skeptical of the Asian American movement and what it stands for, a lot of them buy into kind of model minority tropes much more than younger people do. I mean, so there's, there are definitely correlations there. In terms of how that relationship looks going forward like that's something i'm going i'm fleshing out more because it does the model minority itself also kind of changes form i would argue it kind of shifts over time like in the 60s it's a particular moment 1966 this is like the height of black power and so the reason why these these white social scientists and writers are writing these articles about chinese and japanese americans in the 60s is i mean they're anti-black these are anti-black narratives right they're I say this all the time, but it's bears repeating, like the model minority, it's 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 an anti-black trope. It's not primarily, it's not about Asian Americans, it's actually primarily about African Americans, but it's just it uses Asian Americans to blame and demonize African Americans for the and to blame them for their own problems. And so that's the particular context in the 60s that makes sense. In the 80s, it's a little different. Like the late 80s, there's like a resurgence of model minority narratives around Asian American educational attainment. Many people might have seen this very famous Time Magazine cover <laughs> with a bunch of Asian looking nerds <laughs> that comes out in the late 80s. So I mean, the, the model minority itself also shifts. And I, as a historian, that's partly what we're interested in. It's like, how do these things change over time? Because I'm not trying to say that the exact same discourse applies in the sixties to today. Right. But it's different versions, right. Of of kind of that logic, which is inherently non-structural and anti-black. And I think that's incredibly important and it uses Asian Americans as a tool. So I think those are, those are very important to remember those themes.
1: That's right. I want to circle back to an earlier part in our conversation where you were talking about in the late seventies and eighties, the standard, the kind of, um, more common American religious histories of evangelicalism focuses on white political agency. And then you're complicating that by looking at post-65, um, kind of the explosion of immigrants from um, from Asia and how the changing societal demographics is not addressed in the American religious histories. So on the one hand, you're doing the field of history a favor by... Uh, telling a story that accounts for more of the facts on the ground regarding demographic changes in US society in the 70s and 80s. My question is, uh, what change does that make for our understanding of what evangelicalism is? So let's grant your narrative is true, and I believe it is. So like, how does that alter our understanding of what evangelicalism is?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think the way that I'm thinking about evangelicalism, I'm thinking of it more in terms of kind of the lived kind of on the ground. Um, I am taking an institutional lens, right? So my way of kind of getting at, cause you're right. I think a lot of the kind of white evangelical histories, they focus on, I mean, they focus on Jerry Falwell, moral majority through the eighties, then the moral majority dies. Christian coalition emerges in the late eighties, early nineties. Right? So there's this different story than you have um, you know, values voters under George W. Bush, right? And so there's all different versions of this political history and that's kind of high political history. And then there are now white historians who are writing these kind of like rank and file uh, evangelical histories looking at grassroots movement, uh, activism among like white women as driving a lot of this stuff, right? So this is the way historians work. Um, for Asian Americans, because Asian Americans aren't really until really more recently, they're not, these are not like, you can't write elite histories of evangelicalism with Asian Americans at the helm, because it just doesn't make any sense. There really aren't that many who are any at all who
1: are like known
0: household figure, right? These are not people appearing in like Time magazines, like 100 Most Influential People, right? It's just, that's not happening.
1: Unlike Russell Jung, shout out to <laughs> <Yes>. Russell. <laughs>
0: it took until 2021. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Russell, I just saw that. So I was very happy to see that. So like you that know. doesn't really happen though, right? Like um, for much of American history, especially in, even in the last 50 years, but there's so many transformations happening on the ground in evangelicalism. So I look mm-hmm. at seminary, so I look at Christian higher education. I look at seminaries, Christian colleges, you know, by, ear, by the early 1970s, Wheaton College is 10% Asian American. And that number just keeps on growing by the eighties and nineties. And so Christian colleges have this influx of Asian students, Asian American students, Asian and Asian American, I should say. Seminaries, Fuller Fuller, in the early 1970s, like some of its classes are about, are about 10% um, Asian. That just steadily grows over the 80s and 90s. 90s is a huge explosion where I would argue, and some people would argue, it's a number of seminaries, they're kept alive by the tuition dollars of Asian and Asian American students, particularly Korean um, and Korean international students, but also Asian American students. I mean that's just the reality right and so it's but these histories these are much more kind of on the ground they're more kind of in lived practice so christian higher education churches church denominations like where are churches getting planted i think most people might know that in general majority white churches are on the decline and the the churches like kind of the where you see the church growth is among um, immigrant and non-white um, Christians, and then that's a phenomenon that's been—I mean, that's not that didn't start like yesterday, right? That's been happening, and so I'm looking at those transformations as well within evangelical denominations and then parachurch groups, intervarsity crew, um, to some extent, navigators. I mean, <laughs> if you went to Urbana in 1992, there was an article in Christianity Today <laughs> where the writer—I think it's a white writer. Um, he goes to Urbana in the early 90s. And he's like, "Oh my God! It's like, <laughs> where are these Asian Americans coming from?" Because there's like a huge percent of Asian Americans, and 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 that's not just something that you know. I mean, folks are observing this, but there's not much attention to kind of how that happened and what that means on the ground. Because the thing is, if you are an organization like Campus Crusade, or Crew, or Intervarsity, if you are the Evangelical Christian Covenant, the PCA, like you already you have you have to think about these things. These things are kind of right. It, it's kind of you have to deal with this growing diversity. And sometimes that impels changes in like policy, practice, like funding, everything. It basically changes like the actual mechanics and and the lived realities of evangelicalism. So that's more what I'm looking at. It's kind of what does it look like in the rank and file on the day to day on the kind of from the perspective of these very like historically white organizations? Like how does that happen?
1: yeah. Yeah. I think the proliferation of cases, the rank and file examples you're talking about, it's extremely helpful. My question for the historian is, is the temptation in narrating the story one of assimilation? In other words, that you have these majority white organizations, then you have this explosive, uh, the doubling and tripling of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans after 65, Is the story one of, oh, you've got um, majority white organizations absorbing uh, Asian-Americans into them and Asian-Americans becoming white? Is, Is that the story that best describes what's happening or is that something to be resisted? I don't know. I'm just curious what you think. And maybe I didn't frame it correctly. So feel free to change how I'm framing it.
0: Oh no, I think I think I understand exactly what you' what you're asking. And I guess what I would say, maybe this is like a cop out, but this is actually true. I'm looking at the conflict of the tension itself. It's like the negotiation. Like I don't think there is an answer, and it's still playing out. I think many folks, especially um, veterans of crew, will have seen this open letter that came out from some of the staff members and crew about this very issue of kind of racial diversity and how to deal with race. I mean, parachurch groups, I'm I'm working on the chapter now about intervarsity and crew and the creation of multi-ethnic ministries and the contests surrounding that. Because I think a lot of folks at the time, and this kind of recurs in the 1990s again, it's like, if you have ethnic, kind of ethnic specific ministries, is that like segregation, right? (laughs) right? How do you kind of, it's really that question of, of, of a kind of, it kind of gets exactly to your question. It's like kind of, integration assimilation versus something else like segregation separation like how do you how do you like how do you deal if you're a historically white institution how do you deal with growing racial diversity like how what is the best approach like how will it look on the ground what are the contests conversations surrounding these these questions and in different moments right because 70s 90s today different contexts in many different ways but I think that's an ever-present I mean that's really the question, right? That I think it's
1: still playing out.
0: So yes, that's my answer. It's it's about the actual <laughs> negotiation process itself. That's the history yeah. I'm writing.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I like the way you framed it which is it's an ongoing negotiation and it's because there's so many complicating threads. And I think that's what's that's what I find so um interesting and novel about your research is you're complicating the narratives by, by drawing upon things that you know so well, which is repeal its transpacific context and the imperial politics that gave impetus to this influx of refugees and immigrants post 65. And they're bringing in their own political traumas, political interests and their own political agency. They're surely not gonna remain simply passive agents Uh, kind of passively assimilating into pre-existing white organizations they they're bringing their stories and by virtue of bringing their own particular stories which are immigrant stories they are changing the thing that they're participating in that's that's kind of how i'm making sense of what you're saying
0: and the one thing i have to add because this is really important and something i think a lot about I am talking about Asian American evangelicals in conversation with white evangelicalism because I mean, it's ever present, right? It's, it's, the, it's the waters we all swim in um, if you're in these organizations. But the book is also interested in Asian American organizations created and formed by Asian Americans. Um, and so when I mention groups like GEMS, um, Asian American Christian Fellowship, Agape Fellowship, the Commune I talked about earlier, I mean, there's any number of organizations Iwa. I mean that are actually created by Asian Americans for Asian Americans. So I don't want this, I don't, this is not going, I'm really trying my hardest for this not to be a history, you know, about like, let me tell you more about what evangelicals and through the lens of Asian Americans, like that's not at all, that's not at all what I want to do. Like, I'm really trying to think about like, how do I center Asian Americans in this history in ways that are still relevant, because obviously it's part of the bigger history of U.S. evangelicalism, because Asian Americans are also part of U.S. history. So this is a tension I'm constantly um, navigating, but I just, I want to center Asian Americans. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) I want to center Asian Americans, you know, and and that I think doing that will actually allow me to say many things about many different bigger topics, bigger topics, but that's something I really am, just by principle, on principle, something that I'm committed to.
1: Amen, sister. I remember our January 8th colloquium uh, when we had you and Melissa and, and Jerry and Jonathan, and we were talking about centering Asian American identity as a research program and how this complicates kind of the established patterns of argument in our respective disciplines. That was a highly productive panel discussion. And I see you cashing out the spirit of that conversation, which is not, you're probably operating with that spirit long before January 8th, of course, but it's it's awesome to see it materialize in this concrete project. And I am super excited about it. Before I let you go, I want to hear more about what you hope other historians would take away from your book and what ordinary Asian American Christians might take away from your book.
0: I mean, what I want for folks to take away, especially if they're Asian American Christians themselves, I guess I want folks to be able to articulate better for themselves and in general, right? How they fit kind of into, Mm -hmm. I say say this all the time, how they kind of fit into even our discussions about race today. The other piece I haven't mentioned, which actually is also at the center of my book. My first book, My first book had gender dimensions. Um, My first book about repeal, basically almost all of the people who were lobbying Congress or in Congress were men. And so gender was a presence. Um, I did some gender analysis, but in general, right, gender wasn't a huge theme of my first book. But when you think about what has really shaped US Christianity, evangelicalism, (laughs) especially over the past half century. Race, civil rights, huge. But gender, women, patriarchy, I mean, all the things that folks are talking about in relationship to Jesus and John Wayne, um, and then uh, the Beth Barr book as well, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, the creation of like you know, the Council on Biblical men and women. I mean, there's all these groups that are formed around questions of like egalitarianism, complementarianism, should women be ordained, you know, in what context? What can women do? What can they not do? That's a huge part of, I mean, that's just, that's fundamental to the story. And so this book, especially for Asian American women, I also hope this, actually for men and women, I hope that folks recognize, I don't know, just have a greater understanding of how these kind of gender debates, the extent to which maybe, and this is something I'm working out for myself too. And I think this is, this is stuff that people are talking about, which I'm really happy about. It's like, to what extent do these gender debates within white evangelicalism, how do they, how do they kind of play out within Asian American circles? And to what extent, I mean, there's all these arguments about, you know, Asian American evangelicals have their own like Confucian past patriarchies and there's Asian patriarchies. And that's true, there are, but at the same time, there are things that folks inherit from white evangelicalism. And how do you understand those interconnections? That's something I'm trying to figure out for myself as well through the sources. It's like, what does that actually look like at different moments and how does that constrain you know, what Asian American women can do and cannot do. And, you know, I think the reason why that matters is the last thing I'll say. I mean, you know, David, you and I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Ron Chu or Pastor Ron Chu, you know, a while ago where he talked about, you know, the one other kind of second generation Korean American who was serving in the Presbyterian church with him in the (laughs) eighties. Mary Paik, like she wasn't, she didn't have the same opportunities he did, even though they had similar training, but she was a woman. So she wasn't accepted in many church contexts. And I had a similar conversation yesterday with Katie Choi Wong, who was actually in a mainline, in a mainline denomination as well, American Baptist, where early in her career, she didn't have the same opportunities um, because she was a woman and a lot of churches would not accept her, even though technically the American Baptist denomination did ordain women, right? So there is, again, as you mentioned, that disconnect between kind of what historically white institutions will allow, but then how does that actually play out in practice if you're Asian, if you're an Asian American woman seeking to serve in ministry? How does it constrain you? And like, what does that actually look like in practice? So that's also another piece of this history that I think is incredibly important. Um, again, not just for women, but for all of us to understand better.
1: Jane, as always, it's been a fantastic conversation. What you are doing, in writing a history of Asian American Christianity is cutting edge. I don't know of, I hope I'm not speaking out of time. I don't know of anyone else doing this really important work. This is the first kind of stage in developing the narrative and hearing, I'm, I'm learning about these um, Asian specific ministries, churches, this Christian commune uh, that I didn't know about before. I'm learning about, what's going on with mainline and and evangelical Asian-American Christian leaders in the 60s and 70s, this is really important. You're narrating a story that I belong to. As the director of one of the few centers for Asian-American Christianity at seminaries in North America, my center is part of that organizational history. And you're helping to frame the context of my own professional work and vocational Um, ministry. So it's really important work. I think we're going to probably have another conversation as you near completion of the manuscript. Let's stay in touch. And I just want to thank you for taking time out on a Friday to talk to me.
0: Thanks for doing this work, David. I'm serious. Like, yeah, I'm just really grateful for folks like you because you're doing the work. You're creating kind of spaces for folks to talk about these really important issues. And that's so needed, especially outside of Southern California. So <laughs> really, I'm from New Jersey, so I know I know how the coasts compare. And so it's really important to have these spaces. So thank you for doing that.
1: Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jane. We here at the Center
0: for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.